Now I know in the first part of this message, I'm gonna make some friends and some enemies all at the same time. But if you disagree with what I'm about to say, keep that to yourself, all right? So when it comes to Christmas music, some of it is outstanding, like Silver Bells. I sing Silver Bells all the time. I only know Silver Bells, Silver Bells. It's Christmas time in the city and ring-a-ling, and that's all I know, but I love that song. And then, of course, Baby, It's Cold Outside. Cheryl and I do a duet every Christmas Eve for our family. Just kidding, we really don't. We'll be doing that at the Christmas Eve service. You should come. That's not true. What about All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey? I mean, that is a Christmas classic. Thank you. And you know, some of you may not know this, but who does not love? And if you listen to it, you'd love it. Amy Grant's Tender Tennessee Christmas. I mean, that is just awesome, all right? But some Christmas music is insufferable, like that song about the hippopotamus. I mean, can I get a witness like, yes, you don't like that song, it's horrendous. And now where I think some of you are gonna not like me anymore. But the worst Christmas song of all time, hands down, take it to the bank, I win, is Christmas Shoes. I thought Christmas music was supposed to make you merry and bright, not send you spiraling into a deep depression, right? And let me just say this, and I know some of you, you're going to hate that I'm saying this, and I love you. I think it's really bad stewardship to buy shoes for a dying person, okay? I mean, like, if you're that hard up for cash, you shouldn't be buying shoes, okay? So you're like, oh, that's so mean. His mom was going to die. It's just a song, people. It's just a song. All right? And you're like, but maybe it was true. It probably wasn't. It was probably someone who wanted to sell records. I don't like Christmas shoes. <sighs> just needed to get that off my chest. Now let's talk about something positive. Have you ever thought about the difference now, now, we're going to be serious for the rest of our time. No more laughing. Have you ever thought about the difference between a Christmas song and a Christmas carol? Christmas songs are about the holiday in general, like winter wonderlands and one horse open sleighs and chestnuts roasting on an open fire. But a Christmas carol is about the meaning of the holiday. Oh, come let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn king. Many of our Christmas carols are wildly old. Like Joy to the World was written by Isaac Watts in 1719. I mean, take that, Mariah Carey. I mean, you're, that is not a classic yet. 1719, that's a classic. Christmas carols are hymns. We just sang one. Christmas carols are hymns about the events surrounding the birth of Christ. Christmas songs are fun, and we usually sing about Rudolph. Today we're going to look at a carol, and I think this is probably the best or one of the best Christmas carols ever written, but we never sing it at Christmas. This is, in fact, the oldest original Christmas carol. It's ancient. So we're going to look at the story surrounding the first ever Christmas carol. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 26, and if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't, it'll be on the screens. I know that these verses will be familiar. Even if you're not someone who regularly is a part of a church, I know these verses will be familiar to you, but let me just kind of set up the first Christmas carol. It says this, in the sixth month, and that's the sixth month of a woman named Elizabeth's pregnancy. She was pregnant with John the Baptist. So in the sixth month of her pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. 
The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. I love this question. This is one of my favorite questions in the whole Bible. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? I mean, that's a super fair logistics question. All right, like, how's this going to happen? Verse 35, the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. So usually we come to this part of the story and we don't understand the profound implications for Mary in this moment. Here is a girl who lives in the middle of nowhere, who is probably no older than 17 or 18, and she has just been told she is going to carry the Son of God in her womb. Oh, and by the way, the Holy Spirit would overshadow her. When people start asking her, how did you get pregnant? The answer has to be, I was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and now I'm pregnant. I mean, there's not a parent in this room who would believe that excuse from any person in their life. Like, we don't, we're just like, I don't really think I believe you. And you're like, well, that's, what are you trying to say? Mary, when she said, I am the Lord's servant, what she's saying is, is, I know that what this means for me personally is going to be scorn and shame in the community in which I live. I know people will gossip about me behind my back. I know everyone will think I was running around on my uh, fiancé Joseph. Or maybe they'll just assume that Joseph and I got an early start. But I am the Lord's servant. I'm willing to face the scorn and the shame. Verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. We're not even told the town. It's just the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears... The baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. So picture this moment. Mary, she's young, she's a teenager. Elizabeth, she's, she's older, she's barren, she's getting past child-bearing uh, years. And so these two women who are completely insignificant in the Lord's eyes... Like, when you put these, if you were to put Mary and Elizabeth on the totem pole of up-and-comers and important people in the world, they would be at the bottom. And what they're experiencing is history-making in their wombs. And so for this moment, as Mary is thinking about all that has happened to her, the angels visit, her cousin Elizabeth is pregnant, she breaks out 
in the first ever Christmas carol. And Mary starts to sing, verse 46, and Mary said, or you could even say, and Mary sang, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. So that's the first Christmas carol. You may have heard it called the Magnificat before, um, kind of in reference, it's a Latin word for magnificent or to magnify something. And so what Mary is doing here, she is magnifying God. And so maybe you're familiar with this Christmas carol, but we don't actually sing that during Christmas time, but this is the first one. I don't have a lot of experience with music. I played the recorder in fourth grade, and uh, then I picked up the bass clarinet for a little while, and then when my teacher thought I was really bad at that, he asked me to play the tuba, which is just go over there and just there's only three buttons and you should be fine. I love playing the tuba because I didn't have to take that home. I had one at home and then one at school. The bass clarinet, I looked like I was carrying around a rifle everywhere I went, so I was glad to change. But I'm not exactly what anyone would describe as musical, even though I love to sing and really hurt people's feelings when I sing. Um, Some of you who are musicians know this. I don't know a lot about music, but I know this. There are only 12 chromatic notes in music. A, B, C, D, E, and F and G. So there's seven. And then there's another five notes that are like sharps and flats in between. There's not an unlimited amount of notes to choose from to make a song. Which means that every song at its core is a shared song. Sometimes among some of my friends who really love music, they like to compare different bands and they're like, hey, I think Coldplay ripped off this song from this really obscure band because this song sounds a lot, of awful like, a lot like this song. Or maybe you like different kinds of music and you notice that the music you like, some of the songs sound similar. And that's because at its core, every song is a shared song because every song shares the same 12 notes. Even though we don't know the tune of Mary's song, we know for certain the sound of the notes would be familiar to us. So we have no idea if, if someone were to play this ancient song, we wouldn't be able to say, oh, that's Mary's song. But if someone were to play the ancient song, the tune that this was written to, we would say, I know those notes, because every song is a shared song. Why do I bring this up? Because, admittedly, Mary's experience of being the mother of Jesus was unique to her in every way. However, the song she sings about her life, even though Mary's experience of being the mother of Jesus is unique, the song she sings about her life is a song that you and I can sing. See, her song can be a shared song if we're willing to sing what Mary is singing about her life. If we share it with her, we can sing it about our lives. I think Mary's song leads us to a really important question, and it's this. What song is your life singing? 
Maybe you've never really thought of your life that way, but if, if you were to think of your life as a song, what is your song singing? What music is your life demonstrating? Is it pleasant? Is it a song that, that encourages people and uplifts people, or is your song a dirge, and you are just like always down, and there's never anything good, and everything's always bad, and you're always the victim of every story? Or is the song of your life beautiful and uplifting? I'm not saying that you don't have hard days and hard feelings. I'm just saying that our lives are singing a song, and they're not just singing a song about us. They're singing a song about our God. So I want to look at Mary's song. I want to divide it into three parts, because I'm a pastor, and we always have to divide things into three. And so we're going to look at verse 1 of Mary's song, verse 2 of Mary's song, and verse 3 of Mary's song. And the question for each verse is, is my life singing this song? So if we were to look at the first things that Mary says, says I would say verse 1 of Mary's song is gratitude. Her, the first verse is all about gratitude. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Don't you think gratitude is an incredibly beautiful and endearing quality in someone? We're always trying to teach our kids at home to say thank you. We remind them about 100 times per week when we do something for them to say thank you. At 4 a.m. on Thursday morning, my youngest daughter, Olivia, woke up with a fever. And so Cheryl got out of bed. She went downstairs into Olivia's room. She got her some crackers and some juice and some Tylenol, sang her a song, you know, did the whole thing. You know, many of you who are parents, you know that drill. It's wonderful to be up at 4 a.m. And so Cheryl goes in the room and she takes care of Olivia. And as Cheryl is walking out, Olivia says to her in the wee hours of the morning, thank you for serving me, Mama. And it's just like, and we're like, Cheryl and I are high-fiving each other the next morning, like, yes, we did at least one thing right. Like, that kid's the best. And, but then, you know, you have to remind her the very next day, say thank you. But isn't it a beautiful thing when someone is thankful? Thankful for what God has done for them. Thankful for what others have done for them. So as Mary is reflecting on all that God has done for her, she's overflowing with gratefulness. She knows that she has done nothing to deserve the kindness that God has shown her. Notice in Mary's words, there is no whiff of entitlement. No like, I'm a pretty good choice, God. There's none of that. You can sense her, her feelings of unworthiness. Have you ever thought about where gratitude begins? Like I know some of us are trying to be more grateful and we just had Thanksgiving and the holidays and we're just, we're just trying to live more grateful lives and we kind of say those things and they sound like really nice platitudes. But have you ever actually thought about like where does gratitude actually begin? Gratitude begins with the assumption that you aren't owed anything. Gratitude is birthed in a heart that realizes Everything you have is a gift. A grateful person is a dependent person. Grateful people realize that they depend on God for everything. That's where gratitude begins. It's an attitude of the heart that says, I don't deserve a thing. See, I think a lot of us kind of go between gratitude and entitlement because 
We feel like someone owes us. And we don't actually say those words. We don't actually communicate those words. But if we really thought about our actions, if we thought about what made us upset, and we thought about why we got angry, I would guess underneath a lot of that is a sense that I deserve something more than what I'm getting. I know that I often see that in my own heart. So as you think about your own life, would you say that you are overflowing with gratitude? Are you grateful to God for all he has done for you? Or are you frustrated with God because he hasn't given you everything your heart desires? We all walk through really difficult times in life. And I know that sometimes in the valleys it's really hard to find things to be thankful for. But gratitude takes work and commitment. Like gratitude says that no matter what I'm going, to, going through, I'm going to have a grateful heart towards the Lord. Are you grateful to the people around you? Or are you taking them for granted? When's the last time you got in your shower and you turned it on and it was hot? And you just thought, thank you God for hot water. Do you know that there's 650 million people in the world who don't have running water in their homes? And I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty. I'm saying it to say that there is much to be grateful for, even all the things you're already taking for granted. When's the last time you looked your spouse in the eye and said, thanks for folding my socks? You're like, I fold my own socks. Okay, they do something else for you. Just find something. We have a tendency to take for granted the people around us. But is our life going to sing a song of gratefulness to God and to others? Here's verse 2 of Mary's song. If verse 1 is gratitude, verse 2 is humility. Look at these verses. I love this part of the song because Mary is teaching us that God cares for people who are humble. And we don't have to guess what a humble person is like. Mary tells us. She says to us what humility looks like. See, humble people fear God. His mercy extends to those who fear him. They have a deep-seated respect and reverence for who God is, and they receive his mercy. But notice the next verse, people who are proud, God lets them live in their own fantasy land. Being scattered in your inmost thoughts is a way of saying that when we're proud and when we're prideful, We're blind to the truth of who we really are. What Mary says here that the proud are scattered in their inmost thoughts is incredibly scary. Because what what proud people can't do is they can't see their pride at work. And they think that how they're acting is totally fine. And And prideful people have major blind spots to the pride in their life. And here's what's strange When you're proud, God lets you go and be proud. And he lets you keep on believing that you're better and more on top of the world than you actually are. Because pride blinds us to the truth. And here's why God does that. Because when we're proud, we wouldn't listen anyway. I'm sure God's been trying to get your attention for a long time. But your pride has kept your ears closed to him. People who use power for their own gain their own gain, God overthrows, but humble people he lifts up. Humble people know their need for God. I love the verse that it says they are hungry for God. People who are hungry are going to be filled. They're going to be satisfied in God. Humble people know that God is their source for everything, but prideful people are self-sufficient, 
And since they are so full of self, they end up empty. If I were to just kind of put it simply, humble people attract God's attention. The ones who live their lives knowing they are in need of God's grace, God's love, and God's mercy receive it. God's ear is bent to the humble. God's ear is bent to those who know they need Him. God can't work in your life if your heart is hard and you think you have everything covered. See, our culture esteems those who are wealthy, powerful, beautiful, talented, and successful. You're like, they do? Yeah, just think about all the people in our culture who the world esteems as awesome. It's fair to say we tend to applaud and want to emulate those who are in high places. But God responds to those who get low. They get low. Are you in a low position in your life? Or are you trying to get higher? Here's what I mean. Are you always looking for people to esteem you, respect you, stroke your ego, tell you you're great? Are you always thinking about how, 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 how much you're doing and, and how no one appreciates you? Because I can get in those modes really quickly. See, humble people don't think less about themselves. Humble people think about themselves less. And so the question for us is, is our life singing a song of humility? Are we finding ways to get low? And how do we get low? We have a deep-seated reverence and awe for who God is, and we make our lives about serving others. We don't make anything about us. Humble people are willing to listen, and they're teachable, and they understand, and when they, when they do the wrong thing, they own it. So the question for us is, are we getting low, or are we just trying to get higher? Because here's what's strange with the Lord. God exalts the humble. But proud people, he turns away from. He stiff arms pride. So is your life singing a song of humility? I think if we have any hope of becoming humble, we need to be like Jesus. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippian church to encourage them to be humble. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8 says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Is our life singing humility? Here's the third and final verse. It's faith. The last verse of Mary's song and the last verse of our life that we should be singing is a song of faith. Mary says something about Israel. She says, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. So what Mary is saying here is absolutely stunning. At the end of the song, she is telling us something about the character of God. 
In Genesis 12, we're not going to read it, but in Genesis 12, we read about a promise that God made to Abraham. Abraham was an old man, his wife was barren, and God made a promise that the whole world was going to be blessed through one of Abraham's children. One thing you may not have noticed is that when the angel Gabriel was telling Mary about who her son was, Gabriel said this about Jesus, Luke chapter 1, verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And then catch this part. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. So if you know the Old Testament, you know that Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. You're like, why does that matter? Because Mary knows, after the angel had said that Jesus would rule over the house of Jacob, Mary knows that the baby in her womb was the fulfillment of God's promise to bless the world through Abraham. Jesus was the offspring of Abraham Abraham, through whom the whole world would be blessed. Jesus wasn't just the Messiah for Israel. He is the Savior for all people. What is Mary actually saying here? How do, why are we saying that this verse of Mary's song is about faith? Because when she realizes what God is doing for Israel, when she realizes that God has remembered Israel, what she is singing about is that she serves a God who keeps His promises. She serves a God who does not forget his people. So the Israelites had been waiting millennia for Jesus to come. And Mary gets to say and be the first one to say, See, he kept his promise. We had been waiting and we had been waiting and we wondered if he was ever going to follow through. And he did. And Mary chooses to see life through the eyes of faith. God never forgot his promise. He always follows through. What does that mean for us? It means our lives should be singing loudly that God can be trusted. Are you living your life that way now? Is your life a loud, beautiful song that God can be trusted? Are you staring down the hard things in your life and your disappointments and your fears and your things that you're not sure about? And are you standing on the rock-solid truth that we serve a God who never abandons His people? Christmas is a celebration of the God who does not forget about the ones He loves. It's a beautiful, rock-solid promise that God can be trusted in every season, in every moment, no matter what you're going through. He is going to follow through, and He will not forsake you. That's what we're saying. That's what our lives should be saying, no matter what we walk through. And the harder life gets, the louder we need to sing it. Because when we're on a beach sipping a pina colada with a drink with an umbrella in it, There's not a whole lot to hold on to. You're like, I think this is pretty good. But when the storm comes and when the trials come and when the suffering comes, we need to join Mary and say, I serve a God who keeps his promises. I serve a God who's not going to abandon me. And so those are the verses of Mary's song. Gratitude, humility, faith. But all of us know that what we usually remember about most songs isn't the verses, is it? 
The reason you love certain songs is because of what? The chorus. We love choruses. And the chorus tends to capture our hearts and our imagination. And so if we look at Mary's song and we take a step back, what is the chorus? Or to put it another way, if the verses of your life and my life should be gratitude, humility, and faith, what should the chorus of our life be? What should we be singing the loudest? The chorus of Mary's song and the chorus of your life and my life is worship. This Christmas carol is a worship song. Mary starts out, my soul glorifies the Lord. That word glorify in the Greek is megalunos. My soul mega the Lord. It makes God great. I see the greatness of God in my soul. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The individual parts of it are instructive, but the song as a whole can transform your life. This song comes from the heart of a young woman who is a worshiper. And let me just say this, because I know that sometimes there's different kind of people who believe different things about Mary. Mary is someone who had incredible faith, but not someone we should pray to or worship. Why? Because Mary is a lot like you and a lot like me. She realizes that she needs God to save her. Mary would discover that the baby in her womb came to bleed and die for her sin. Mary is an incredible woman of faith. And we should esteem her as a hero of faith. But we should not worship her and we should not pray to her. Because she also, like you and like me, needed a savior. But when you study this song, you can only come to one conclusion about Mary. She was a woman who didn't just know some stuff secondhand about God. Mary didn't say things about God that you learn by just kind of being religious and kind of having a service commitment to God. See, Mary had an intimate knowledge of God. We might say that Mary had a relationship with God. And people who walk with God know that all of life is worship. Worship isn't just about songs. When we gather here on Sunday morning, we don't just have the song part, and we just call that part of our lives, those 20 minutes, worship. Worship just isn't about music. Worship is about how we live. God's desire for each of our lives is that we would be worshiping Him in every moment of our day. We worship Him in our work. We worship Him in our marriages. We worship Him in our attitudes, in our motives, in our word choices. We worship Him in our entertainment choices. We worship Him through our giving. We worship Him through our thinking. And we worship Him in the way that we treat other people. At every moment of life, we are worshipers. And the chorus of our lives should reflect that we live like Mary to worship God our Savior. The greatest expression of worship in our lives combines the, the verses of Mary's song. See, we need to be people who are singing the song of faith. 
faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Faith that Jesus Christ is coming back for his people. We are also people like the Israelites who are waiting. They were waiting for Jesus to come the first time. We are waiting for Jesus to come the second time. We are waiting for the second advent of Jesus Christ to come so that we can experience final salvation, so that we can live forever in perfect peace and perfect harmony with God and with one another where every tear will be dried. But we have to be people of faith in these days. We also have to be people of humility We don't just need to have faith in Jesus. Some of you, you have faith in Jesus, but you're not surrendered to Jesus. So we have to be the kind of people who are humble to surrender to Jesus Christ and follow him and actually let him be in control and not you and not me. Jesus is the one who has claim over your life. When you give your life to Jesus, you're handing over the steering wheel and you're saying, I go where you tell me to go. My life is in your hands. What your word says, I obey. And we also need to be people of profound gratitude to Jesus Christ for all he has done for us. I think that sometimes when we come together in this room, one of the prayers we often pray before service when we meet with the worship team and then we meet back in this room right off to my left, One of the things we're always praying for is that our worship would be motivated by just profound gratefulness for all that God has done for us. And I know that sometimes we have to fight through some stuff to be grateful. And I know that sometimes when we get to work on Monday and and we don't like our boss or or things are messy at home and, and we don't have everything we wished we had, We have to fight through those moments so that we can live life as worship and also say, God, I am grateful even in the hard things. So what is my challenge to you today? My challenge is is that each of us, especially during this Christmas season, where it's easy to be singing about Jesus but not living for Jesus, to take some time and consider the song of your life. And I would ask you this morning, is your life a reflection that you live to worship Jesus Christ. Or we can just put it this way, what song is your life singing? What song is your life singing? Before we leave today, I'm gonna ask, just in this place, if everyone can just be still, we'll be dismissed in just a moment. But if you could pray with me with every head bowed and every eye closed, I would ask you this morning, what song is your life singing? Is your life a song of entitlement? Is the life of your song or is the song of your life that God is holding out on you? Is the song of your life that God's not being fair? Maybe you need to commit today to sing a grateful song with your life. Or maybe you're here today and the song of your life is just pride, pride, pride. 
No one can tell you anything. You're never wrong. You always think it's someone else's fault. You're always pointing the finger. And when people who love you come to you and say, no, no, it's really not anyone else, it's you. Maybe the goal of your life is just to become someone and your pride is motivating all of your success. You're not doing it for God, you're doing it for you because the deepest desire of your heart is to be known and affirmed by other people and for everyone to think you're awesome. But see, when Jesus called you, he called you to a life of humility. He called you to a life of surrender. And maybe there's others of us The song of our life right now is despair. There's not a whiff of faith. We're upset and we're angry and we're afraid and we're worried and we're anxious about everything. And when people hear us talk, they wouldn't actually know that we have the God of the universe as our dad. Some of us have feel like God has forsaken us and God has left us. And we believe the lie that we're alone and that God doesn't care. And maybe today is a day where you say, God, you see me, you know me, and you will not abandon me. And maybe your life needs to start singing the song of faith. And for all of us, is the chorus of our lives worship? Are our words worshipful? Is the way we treat our spouse and our kids worshipful? Is the way we work our jobs worshipful? Is the way we spend our money worshipful? You don't just worship when you sing. You worship when you get up and when you go home and all this week. It's important to reflect on these things. Before we go today, before I pray, I want to ask you, there might be some people in this room who have never never put their faith in anywhere except themselves or karma or the universe. But the Bible is really clear. There's only one way to know God. There's only one way to experience forgiveness and hope and eternal life. And the only way is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. So this morning, if you're here and you want to give your life to Jesus and you know that you need to be humble and you need to put your faith in Jesus and you know that God is calling you right now to live your life in worship to Him through faith in His Son, today is your day. I want to pray with you today. If you want to give your life to Christ, pray this simple prayer with me. Jesus, I need to put my faith in you today. I know that I need to humble myself before you. And I invite you in. And I invite you to take over. And I need you to make me new. And I need to stop worshiping myself. And I need to start worshiping you. 
And I believe that you'll receive me today. And you've called me today as one of your kids. I put my faith and my trust in you, Jesus. In your name I pray.